Thank you, ladies, for preparing our hearts with that beautiful song, speaking of the treasure that was given us. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, Father, we thank you again for the treasure of your Son. And Father, may we understand that your desire is that we live like him through his strength and power, that we would live lives that represent the Lord Jesus Christ and give you honor and glory. Now we ask that you would speak to our hearts through thy precious word once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you will take your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians with me, Second Thessalonians chapter three. Here we are beginning a brand new year. And I believe it's time, though, for us, as concerning our studies, uh, to complete something. We're starting something new, but we want to finish something that we started, and that would be the book of Second Thessalonians. And so we're going to wrap this series up this morning, and I pray that uh, you will be able to take something practical from it. And apply it to your own life here. We're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. And we are going to break this down together. Uh, Now, when you write a letter to somebody, um, how do you usually end your letter? Do you ever recall, remember how you, I guess nobody writes letters anymore. Do you? <laughs> it's emails. But, all right, if it's an email letter, though, uh, how do you usually, you know, conclude? Uh, if you're writing to someone or a family and, uh, you know, do you, do you suddenly, you know, come down hard with something and just like, whoa, and finish your letter with uh, uh, talking about a problem that they had? No, it just doesn't sound right. You, you want to end a letter encouraging. And what's unusual about this is the Apostle Paul is going to conclude this letter with a problem that was happening in the church. And now this is not a feel-good message or sermon, okay, this morning. So it's, it's all I do is, is I communicate what God's Word says to you. And we come to this passage, and it, you don't leave here going, oh, joy, oh, rapture, what a, I, I feel good now, ready to go into the new year. But I think we can honestly take some of the truths that are presented here by the Apostle Paul, and we, we, can, we can find a way to use this, these truths in our life and make it very practical and positive. Okay, as well. So look with me at verse 6. Let's start there. Paul now is concluding his letter, and this is what he says. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Now, if you have an NIV, instead of the the phrase keep aloof, 
it says, keep away. If you have a King James Version, it is translated, withdraw yourselves, okay? In the name of the Lord Jesus, keep yourself withdrawn or keep away or stay aloof from every brother who leads. Now, New American Standard uses, translates it unruly life. If you have a King James Version, that is translated walketh disorderly. Okay, and then if you have an NIV, it's translated idle and disruptive. Okay, so, the, the, and we'll kind of look into that here, what this all means. And he concludes that verse by saying, and not, uh, not according to the tradition which you have received. That word tradition is translated the word teaching in the NIV, in the King James, okay? So I think it's important to uh, use different translations to kind of grasp the meaning of what, uh, what the scriptures are saying. Basically, what was happening is, and Paul had dealt with this earlier, we'll see that in a moment, some of the believers in the church just decided to stop working. In other words, they, they wanted to just coast along and let other people meet all their needs. And it's not because they couldn't work, but they chose not to work. It was a choice. They were able-bodied. There were opportunities and jobs. They could have gotten something. But the Apostle Paul here is talking about the person, the brother. Notice he says every brother in the, concerning those. So he's talking about believers who ha are living an unruly life or walking disorderly or idle. And basically, this means not just not getting a job and just freeloading off other people in the church. Now, Paul dealt with this issue back in the first letter. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Just go back. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's pick it up at verse 9. He wrote in his first letter. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So this church was a loving church. They cared for one another, and they cared for believers outside the church. Okay, but then Paul exhorts them in verse 11. He says, and to make, excel more with that love, but, and to make it your ambition. We all have ambition. To what? To lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. Just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders, that's unbelievers, and not be in any need. But the key there is there in verse 11, Paul says, I want you folk in the church, make it your ambition to just lead a quiet life. 
Not be one of these people that is just, uh, you know, causing trouble in the church and other people's lives, you know, and sticking your nose in someone else's business. Lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. And he says there, work with your hands. So there was a problem that people weren't working. There were certain people in the church that were uh, lazy or perhaps other reasons they weren't working. But why would Paul then talk so much about this issue there, about work? He says it in the first letter, and then three weeks later, at the end of his letter, he's got to start telling the church, oh, by the way, those people in the church that are just sitting there doing nothing, and they, they, they don't even bother to try and look for a job or get a job, but they're just just feeding off other people and, and, and disrupting their lives. Uh, and, you know, over the years, it's usually it's, you'll come in, in contact with someone who, who is the kind of person that just uh, doesn't want to work. And just that's, that's not going to be part of them. Uh, you know, there are different slogans that people use, you know, to that reasons why they're not going to work. I read this. Hard work may not kill you, but why take the chance? Yeah, our culture is really confused. You know, now we have two sides of the spectrum, okay? But what we're looking for is the modern medium uh, in the center. On one hand, the one extreme is workaholics. And, you know, many just throw themselves into work and it costs them their family. I don't know how many times I've talked to uh, those who have been separated or divorced and the husband never had time or the wife and they never had time. They, they just were through themselves. They were workaholics and, and that's all they cared about. Make more money and keep themselves busy that way. And that was that was uh, harmful. But then the opposite side is what is you might call workaphobics. You ever hear that? Workaphobics. Those who are afraid of work. Now we are Paul is not talking here about those who cannot work or those who were laid off of a job, those who tr- are trying to find a job, those who are are maybe ill and can't can't take uh take care of themselves and uh, such as widows and others, and they can't provide for their family or themselves. Uh, he's not talking about or those that are trying their, to do their best. He's talking about, about those who completely say, no, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, too stressful, works too stressful. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll look for a job soon. And then he just that kind of individual is disruptive in the church. We all know about work and what how God thinks of it. Uh, way in the, back in Exodus chapter twenty, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God said, six days you shall labor or and do all your work." So God required Adam to get out there and till the ground, and he was he was to work six days. Seventh day was, a day, of course, the day of rest. Of course, sadly, today we got in our American culture, uh, people are working seven days a week. 
Now, it's understandable, you know, if, if, if you absolutely have to. But, uh, but here, work is a gift from God. And then Colossians 3.17, Paul wrote, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, or you could say works, do it in all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever I'm doing, I'm do, I need to do it for the glory in, of God through the name of Jesus, as if I'm doing it for him. I may not like the job I'm in. I may not like what I'm doing. And so many have jobs and occupations that, that, that they really wish they had something else. But they, they went, and maybe some of you have been there, where he didn't like the job, but you took it because you had to meet the needs of the family. And that's to be so commended. It's commended by God. And to do it in the name of the Lord. To do it as if, even though you don't like it, as if you're doing it for Jesus Christ, because we are. But notice, go, go here, go back here then to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And notice what he says at the beginning of, of verse 6 again. He said, we command you, it's a command, brethren. And then he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the Savior's full title here to communicate the absolute seriousness of this problem. So he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. This command is given in his name. And basically it's to the church that wasn't doing anything about those who deliberately decided to live a life of, uh, that was uh, undisciplined, unruly, sinful, and they continued without repentance or trying to, to turn, okay? And so it just, now it seems harsh, doesn't it? But keep aloof, keep away, he says here. Look at verse 7 now through, through 9. Let's look at 7 through 9. He goes on then. And he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, Okay, that's key in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9. Not that we do not have the right, the right to do what? The right to receive uh, things for our needs, money, food. We have the right as ministers of the gospel to receive these things. But, he sa but basically Paul is saying, we decided, me, Paul, Paul speaking of himself and Titus, Timothy, those who were uh, the group that went to, to uh, the missionary group that went there to bring the gospel, what did they do? They worked, and we know he was a tent maker, Paul, so they worked there to, uh, uh, to make money so that nobody in the church could accuse them of being there f to fleece the flock, so to speak. 
What they did is they basically worked, and then when, when it was uh, time to receive food, time to eat, Paul and his companions actually paid the church people for the food. So nothing there is, and they did this. Paul did this as an example. Notice he says now, it's time to follow my example. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament yet. So all they had was what Paul said. And Paul had to lead by example, and that's what he says. So he says in verse 7, you know you ought to follow our example, okay? We didn't act like some of these people do in the church, undisciplined in our manner, you know, or freeload off people. But he wants them to follow his command. But what was happening is one of the reasons that the the certain individuals in the church were not working was also because they, Paul was teaching them about the second coming of Christ, the rapture, the return of the Lord in the air. And so he would be reminding them that Jesus could come any moment. And so there were people in the church that said, well, if Jesus could come, maybe Jesus would come today or tomorrow. Oh, man, I... Forget this work stuff. I'm, I'm ready to go to heaven. And so what did they do? They, they basically stopped working. They just sat and told, told other believers in the church, oh, you know, you don't believe that Jesus is coming soon? Well, watch me. And they did nothing. And they used it as an excuse sometimes to not work. And so they would, they would just wait and wait. Jesus wouldn't come, but... But they kept saying, no, uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're waiting for the return of Christ. How many remember the, those that set dates for the coming of Christ? There was one in particular, a man, Harold Camping, who's not with us anymore. My mom and dad, all we listened to was family radio growing up. How many of you just listen to family radio? Some of you older folk, some of you don't even know where it is anymore. It played Christian music all day long, okay? So it was constantly playing. And Harold Camping was the founder of it. And then he would come and give messages and that. But Harold, there was a point in his ministry who, where Harold Camping, he started this, uh, this radio uh, station called Family Radio. He predicted that Jesus was returning on May 21st, 2011. So he says, mark the date. Jesus is returning then. He's coming then. It was, it was the doomsday message. Basically, he predicted that on that day, 200 million people will be raptured away when Jesus returns in the clouds. And then a series of natural disasters, including earthquakes, will kill those left behind. And so that was his message. And this, of course, that date came and went, didn't it? He actually made a date. And this is nothing against Harold Camping. God used him. He had a wonderful ministry. You know, touched many hearts. But it's the, it's the idea of setting dates is so dangerous. He actually set a date back in September, for September 1994, a, a doomsday prediction, and th that was, came and, and went. But so many of his followers believed that 
wow, Jesus is coming today. Well, let's, we, let's just pack our bags. Let's get, so this is some of the things that happened. For instance, Adrian Martinez and her husband quit their jobs, spent their last penny in renting a house in Orlando. And this is what she said. We had budgeted everything so that on May 21st, we won't have anything left. Waiting for Jesus that day. Similarly, Robert Fitzpatrick of Staten Island, New York, was so sure of the May 21st doomsday prediction that he spent his entire life savings of $140,000 on New York City subway ads about doomsday. Not surprisingly, when the appointed time had come and passed and nothing happened, all these followers were disillusioned and broke. Fitzpatrick was one of them and says, I don't understand why nothing has happened. I did what I had to do. I did what the Bible says. Isn't that sad? And some of the people in the church here, Second Thessalonians, were doing that. Okay, uh, Jesus is coming. I'm ready for him. So we're not working. And so Paul had to address this in the, at the end of his letter, sadly, here. And then we go on and look what he says then. And then <clears throat> verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If anyone will not work, let him eat. So in other words, when he visited them, he was dealing with this issue. Those who don't want to work, and this is a choice, remember. It's not those who were laid off or other reasons, but those who just basically weren't going to work. Then don't give them food. In other words, don't enable them. For we hear that some, verse 11, some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You ever hear that term before? Busybodies? Yeah. Are there any people that you would consider busybodies in your life? There were some in the church here. These were these people. The Greek word for busybodies refers to meddling in other people's affairs. Okay. Turn quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy concerning the church. 1 Timothy 5 verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. Okay? And to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Basically, Paul is telling Timothy, family should take care of family before the church takes care of of those in the church, especially widows. If a widow has family to take care of them, they ought to be doing the caring and not burden the church with it. Verse five, now she who is a widow indeed and who has left, has been left alone, means no family members, 
no support, no family members, left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. That's the kind of widow the church is to take care of. But verse 6, but she who gives herself to one pleasure is dead even while she lives. This is about the younger women who basically uh, were, were uh, not... Uh, we're actually being a problem, being busybodies. Look, look at verse 7. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anybody, anybody does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Talking about those uh, husbands who would not provide for their family. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints of feet, which means very compassionate, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But then he says, but tell the church this, verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. Here it is. As they go around from house to house, these are ladies with nothing to do, okay, and not merely idle, but what does idleness turn into? But also gossips, and here he says it, and busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married and bear children, keep house and keep the enemy, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So Paul here uses that same word, busybody. And those are those that just decided, again, they're, in, they're putting their nose where it doesn't belong in other people's lives. And some, sometimes that, that happens in churches, right? You'll have someone who just, and, and it becomes bothersome to the, to the families in the church. But what I want to point out here, though he is, Paul is harsh, you know, uh, I want you to turn back with me now to 2 Thessalonians. We want to wrap this up and look with me back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Okay. And he, he, so he comes down hard on those people that are not working and just bothering other people in the church. But verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, those who are hard workers and those who are seeking to, to glorify the Lord in their life, do not grow weary of doing good. And then look, look how he concludes this in verses 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... This is what the three things that the church is supposed to do concerning these busybodies, okay? The non-workers who just say, eh, 
you, you can take care of me. First of all, he says, take note of that man. Number one, mark him down so that when Paul returns, they got his name. All right. This is someone who can continues in a pattern okay this is not he's not talking about a christian who fails and then gets up one that that doesn't want to you know quits a job maybe and then but he's still looking for another job and and or they're struggling with sin and they don't know how to deal with it and they wish they wouldn't do it but they they've fallen into temptation uh he's not talking about those kind of people He's talking about those that are deliberately staying on course to disobey God in this manner. And then he says, first of all, take note of this man. Secondly, do not associate with him that he may be put to shame. And this this basically means don't don't just get real buddy buddy with the person who is is living this way. You know, you've heard the phrase enabling right? Enabling somebody. Many people who enable do so out of a genuine desire to help. But there is a difference between helping and enabling behavior. Helping someone entails doing something for that person that he can't do for himself. And we've all been guilty of enabling somebody in the wrong way, have we not? While enabling behavior involves doing something that he's completely capable of doing, but chooses not to. There's, there's the difference. There's the difference. And Paul basically is saying, church, don't enable the, the, the person that is living in sin and chooses to go that route. But, what, but I love this part, verse 15. I leave you with this, and then we'll read the concluding uh, benediction. Verse 15. And yet, Paul says, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him, admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. What is the idea? To restore this one. And basically, you've heard of the phrase tough love. Sometimes we have to use that in our families. Well, it has to be used also sometimes in the church for certain situations and uh, for certain people where they choose to live a life of sin. That is their choice and they're staying in it. You love them, but you don't enable them and make sure that they can continue in that lifestyle be, by just pulling up a chair and, and, and being close to them and while they're sinning and doing everything else. We still love them. We still love them. But we got to be careful. Paul is saying, Take the, we need to take as a church the tough love approach. And maybe you need to do that in your relationship. Someone in your family. There's someone. And you see that you've been helping them continue in their addiction or their sin. And, and you, you feel you're doing it out of love. And you're doing it out, out, out of the right motive. But it's actually harming that individual. There are a lot of Christian blog sites. I don't know how many of you go on those. I don't, but I, I just happen to uh, go on one of the Christian uh, blog sites. Uh, and I read this. It was talking about those who were having trouble in their home with someone who didn't work. Okay. Or cho- chose not to work. 
A woman named Chris, in her Christian blog, she wrote this, and I quote, My dad had the same problem, choosing not to work. But my mom did not work either because she had four kids to take care of. When it came time to, uh, that the power, water, and gas bills were so late that they were going to be cut off and the food was running out, for she had stored lots of dried goods. The church we were attending wanted to step in and pay the bills. She would not, speaking of her mother, she would not allow them, the church, to do this. And all the utilities were cut off. How about that? It's a Christian mom. All right. But the dad that said, you know, he was living, living the lazy life, didn't care to take care of his family. She also locked up all, she, I'm sorry, she also locked up and hid all the food and would, not, would only let the kids eat. Wouldn't give him any food. It only took a few days of this and he had a job. And he kept the job all the way to retirement. And she concluded with, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, I don't recommend that. But, you know, she took the tough love approach. She says, okay, this is what you want. These are the consequences. And may God help us to love those individuals and help them in a way, not by enabling by telling them, we're here for you. When you're ready to come back to the Lord, we will always be here like the father with the prodigal son. We always have as a church here, open arms, remember that. Let's always keep our arms open for those who are, are even are living in sin and just pray for them that God will get a hold of their heart and they will repent and turn from their sin. That we can, what's our job? To restore them into the fellowship with God's love and grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for revealing to us, Lord, the important things, Father, that are important to you, that should be to us. With our heads bowed right now, and our eyes closed. Dear Christian, if you are perhaps one of these individuals, you just have chose to go your own way, maybe not work, not take responsibility for your life, you're letting others do it, would you right now confess that as sin and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to turn, become uh, a different person on the inside. Lord, give me the motivation, Lord, to do it for you and to go and begin to work and to trans Lord, trans transform my mind that I might think and act like Jesus. If you're here this morning with someone on your mind that you feel you've been enabling, maybe ask God for wisdom to know how to deal with that situation, that individual. And what to do and what not to do. Just pray for that. And if you're here this morning without the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not saved. We invite you to know Christ as your personal Savior. 
Right now, you can simply receive him by faith. Pray a simple prayer like this with me now. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I am sorry for my sin. I believe you died on that cross for me. You took the punishment for my sin. Come into my heart right now and wash my sins away. I receive you today as my very own Savior. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. And with head still bowed, if you gave your heart to Christ, you are now a child of God. We welcome you to God's family. You have been born again, and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand this morning. You belong to him. Your sins are forgiven you, and you've been given eternal life. Heavenly Father, impress upon our hearts these tremendous truths, and may we continue, Lord, to work while waiting for the return of our Savior. And this we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.